possible for the notes of a song to detract from the message of the words. It is also possible for terrible words to take away from the beauty of the notes in a musical piece, and it is infinitely possible for a performer to ruin the notes and the words of a piece. But every now and again, the message, the notes, and the performer come together to craft something so beautiful. I hope that you enjoyed the choir piece as much as I did. For God so loved the world. That's our passage today. We are in John 3.16. This is what we have come to in our journey through John. Um, John 3.16 has, holds a somewhat um, unique place in our cultural conscience. Um, I think it was in 1977, the, the first fan at a, a basketball game held up a placard, a sign that said, John 3.16. And, and very soon after that, these signs started appearing in stadiums across the country and across the world. And in all sorts of sporting events, basketball games, baseball games, football, NASCAR races, PGA Tour events. In fact, it became so ubiquitous that the writers of SNL took notice and decided that they would do a skit just about what is this John 3.16 that we keep seeing about. John 3.16 is a part of our cultural conscience, at least the, the scripture reference is. Tim Tebow was the quarterback of the Florida Gators, and in 2009, he led his team to the college national championship game. And in that game, he decided that he would write John 3.16 on his eye black, the stuff, the, the tape that they wear underneath their eyes. Well, throughout the three to four hours of that game, as his face was shown on the screen time and time again, some hundred million people Googled what is John 3.16. You can't go anywhere in our culture and not have experienced John 3.16 in some way. And yet for the Christian, John 3.16 is perhaps the most beloved Bible verse of all of them. And that is saying something. One preacher I watched over this last week said that when you are reading your Bible and you come to John 3.16, you are walking on sacred ground. John 3.16 has been called the gospel in a nutshell, for in one sentence, Jesus explains to us what the gospel is. When Randy said uh, a few weeks ago, well, I, I've mapped out where the sermon series is going, and, and I think that you're going to get to preach on John 3.16. My, my thought immediately was, well, that's great, because that preaches itself. I could get up here and just read the verse, sit down, you would all say amen, and we could go home and have an early lunch. But as I dove into the text, and as I read it over and over, and as I meditated on it, I realized the gravity of what we are doing here today, trying to do justice 
to the gospel of Jesus Christ, trying to do justice from the text in John 3.16. And I got to tell you, I feel the weight of it because it is important to get this right. So let's go ahead and dive in. We're actually going to read uh, verses 16, 17, and 18 of John chapter 3. And I want to kind of work backwards a little bit. Um, I want to uh, start with 17, particularly focusing on 18, and then we will come back and we will look at verse 16. But let's get the whole thing in front of us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Look, when we read John 3, uh, 17, when Jesus says to us that God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world through him might be saved, most people don't take offense to that verse. You're telling me that Jesus didn't come to the earth to condemn us? I can get on board with that. You're telling me that Jesus came even to save us. You know what? That's fine with me. You Christians, if you want to believe that, go for it. I don't have any problem with that. But the thing is, Jesus did not just say the words in verse 17 by themselves. There is a context here, and there is a follow-on verse that Jesus immediately said so that we can understand exactly what's going on. In verse 18, Jesus said, whoever believes in him is not condemned. Great. But whoever does not believe is condemned already. Now we get to the stuff that people start taking offense at. People don't like to be told that they are condemned. They don't like to be told that they are sinners. Bodibakum says that there is an unwritten 11th commandment. Thou shalt be nice. And the 11th commandment is more important than the other 10 combined. See, we don't like a verse like this because it violates that 11th commandment. It's just not nice to tell people that they are sinners. It's not nice for us to hear that we are sinners. And yet it is true. It's why Peter says that Christ is a rock of offense to those that reject him. Paul says that the cross is folly to those that are perishing. Those that are in, engrossed in their sin don't want to hear about being engrossed in their sin. And that's what the cross does. That's what Jesus does. That's what the gospel does. It says you are a sinner and we just don't want to hear it. See, most people that you will encounter live their lives based on a worldview that I call a good enough theology. My dad used to put it this way, that most people think that as long as you are a basically good person, you're going to be A-OK. -okay. We have this view of the end of life and whatever comes after it, that there are scales there. And on the one side, all of our good deeds, all of our good actions are placed. And on the other side, all the bad things we have ever done are placed. And if that scale tips ever so slightly towards the good side, we are good to go. We get to enter into whatever we think the afterlife is. 
That's the way that we live. That's the way that we think that we're basically good people means something. Far too many of us who claim the name of Christ even think that. We live our lives as though we're trying to rack up more good than bad so that it counts for us. But Jesus doesn't allow us to think that. Jesus tells us that there are two kinds of people. And they aren't basically good people on one side and basically bad people on the other side. No, Jesus tells us that the two kinds of people are believing sinners and unbelieving sinners. Those are the only kinds of people, and both groups are indeed sinners. We are all sinners. Paul affirms this in Romans 3.23 when he says that all, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I think it's interesting that Paul uses that phrase to fall short. Because think for a moment, if you have to jump a 10-foot gap and you make it by 9.9 feet, that is falling short. But by my standard, that's pretty good. That's good enough. I made it 9.9 feet. That's 99%. I'm doing pretty well. And yet the Bible standard says, no, you have fallen short. There is no such thing as good enough. Whether you've jumped 1% or 99%, it doesn't matter. It wasn't the 100%. You've fallen short. We are all sinners who have fallen short of the glory of God. Now, you might say, the world might say, okay, fine. I, yeah, okay. We're all sinners. We all mess up. You know, we all miss the mark from time to time. We, we take a wrong step off the path. But honestly, what's the big deal? Well, Jesus told us what the big deal is. We stand condemned. Paul, later in Romans uh, chapter 6, verse 23, he tells us that the penalty, the consequences, the wages for our sin is death. And we have to understand what this death is. This death is not our physical death. This is not the death that comes to all of us at the end of life. Look, we are all going to die. These material bodies will eventually wear out. And either accident or disease or just the passing of time will bring death to your body. That's not what Paul is talking about. That's not the condemnation for our sin that Jesus is talking about. No, what we are talking about here is a spiritual death. It is a death that, has, that brings with it an eternal separation of our soul from the God who created it. This is the death that is ours because of our sin. Make what you will of hell and what the Bible says about it, but I would argue that the worst thing about hell may not be the punishment uh, whatever that might be, the worst thing about hell is the separation from God. That is what makes hell, hell. And that's where we are headed, in our sin. Now, it's important for us to understand the gravity of our sin in our life. You see, if we don't make much of our sin, we won't make much of Jesus. If we minimize our sin, we rob the gospel of its true glory. We, we, we behave as though we're like someone who is in the ocean trying to swim, struggling 
to swim. And, and we need Jesus to throw us a life preserver that, that we might cling to it with all our might, that we might kick with all of our strength. And if we do that, we will eventually get ourselves to the safety of the shore or the safety of the boat. But the fact of the matter is, we are not drowning. We have already drowned. We're not struggling to swim. We are dead at the bottom of the ocean in our sin. We don't need a life preserver. We need Jesus to reach to the depths grab hold of our lifeless bodies, pull us up out of the water, place us onto the land, and breathe life into our lungs. That is what we need. We don't need a life preserver. But if we minimize our sin, we will think that we are merely drowning, merely struggling to keep our head above water, all the while we are actually dead at the bottom of the ocean where no life preserver could reach us anyway. We must understand we must come to grips with the gravity the enormity of our sin so great is our sin but if our sin is so great our savior is greater still that is why we focus on this we focus on this we understand what verse 18 tells us that we are already condemned in our sin because by understanding how big a deal that is Finally, can we understand how big a deal John 3.16 is? Now we are ready to go back and look at John 3.16 and understand what Jesus is saying to us in those verses because we understand just how terrible our estate is within our sin, how hopeless we are within our sin. Um. Larry King and Oprah Winfrey are two of the more well-known celebrity interviewers. They dominated the airways for some 30 years, probably. Uh, Oprah on broadcast television and Larry King on cable television. And from time to time, they uh, had the opportunity to interview uh, celebrity Christian pastors, some names that you most likely would recognize. And, and I watched a few of them over the last couple of weeks, and what struck me is that almost invariably, in each of these interviews, both King and Winfrey asked some variation on the same question that basically went like this. Is Jesus Christ the only way to get to God? The other way you might ask that question is, what does someone have to believe to get salvation, to get to God? What do you have to believe? Is Jesus Christ the only way? Now, I got to be honest, I was very disappointed. The majority of these so-called preachers failed the question. They either outright denied the fundamental importance of solus Christus, Christ alone, or they gave such terrible uh, answers with mealy-mouthed language that their, their answers were of no benefit. In fact, the only person that I saw that answered the question unapologetically and gave the, the uh, unmitigated, unvarnished gospel truth was John MacArthur. And I praised God when I heard it because I had heard so many other terrible answers before it. You see, when Randy first introduced the sermon series to us, and he, we started in John's gospel, you'll remember that he identified for us what the purpose, the theme of, God, of John's gospel is. Why did John write the gospel? Well, John wrote the gospel 
that we might believe. And in fact, Randy has titled this sermon series, That You May Believe. So now we come to that critical question, that we may believe what? Because it is important what we believe. It matters what we believe. And let me suggest to you that John 3.16, in such a short, succinct, very measured way, gives to us what we must believe if we are to be called Christians, if we are to be God's children through Jesus Christ. So let's look at John 3.16, and let's see if we can identify some things that Jesus says we must believe if we are to accept the gospel. So John 3.16, for God so loved the world. Well, we've got to stop already. We must believe that God loves sinners. That's what it means when it says God so loved the world. Jesus told this, remember, he is talking to Nicodemus. Nicodemus is a Jew. He is, he is a Pharisee, one of the Jewish leaders. In fact, he's a Sadducee, which was kind of like their supreme court. So in terms of his credentials within God's chosen people, they were impeccable. And yet Jesus says to Nicodemus that, Nicodemus, you've got it all wrong. You think that it's all about your works, but it's actually about God's grace giving you salvation. So when Jesus says to Nicodemus that, that God so loved the world, Nicodemus would have heard that and been scandalized because he would have understand that, understood that he is saying that God doesn't just love the Jew, God doesn't just love his chosen people as testifi testified about in the Old Testament, but God loves the Gentile too. God loves us. God loves those that are so far away from him, those who are actively sinning against him. This is a love that we can't possibly understand. You see, our notion of love is more like the Barney the Dinosaur notion of love. I love you, you love me, we're a happy... You guys disappointed me. Family. But this is what we think, that, that love is a two-way street here. Now, I'm looking around the room, and some of you are too old for that reference, so let me give it to you this, this way. When the Beatles sang, all we need is love, da, 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 what they really meant was, look, if you love me and I love you, we're going to make it, babe. But the idea was that the love goes back and forth. I love you because you love me. You love me because I love you. When the culture says something like, love trumps hate, oh, that sounds so beautiful. What they really mean is that if we come together and love each other, then we can defeat the people that hate us. That is what is implied in that statement when most people say it. This is not the love that we're talking about that God shows to us when God loves the world. God loves a sinful world. God loves a sinful humanity. God shows his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were enemies of God, Christ reconciled us. 
God doesn't wait for us to go into his camp before he will love us. He doesn't even wait for us to turn in his direction or take a step toward him before he will loves us. No, God loved and saved me at the exact moment that I was waging war against him in my sin. That is the kind of love that God shows to sinners, and we must believe that to believe the gospel. We must believe that God loves sinners because that's what we are. If God didn't love sinners, he wouldn't save us because that's what we are. For God so loved the, uh, the world that he gave his only son. We have to believe that Jesus Christ is the only son of God, that he is the second person of the Trinity, that indeed he is God. We must believe this. You see, our salvation hinges on whether or not Jesus has the goods to save us. Can he get the job done? You see, if Jesus were only a man born of an earthly father, then he would have his own sin nature to deal with. He would find himself squarely in our camp, like we talked about at the beginning of our conversation, already condemned in his sin. If he were only a man, he could not die for our sins. But Jesus is fully man and fully God. And because those two natures unite in Christ, he can identify with a sinful man and at the same time he can stay pure and holy that he might be our perfect sacrifice. You see, we must believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God because only the Son of God can save us. Only God can save us from our condition. Your parents can't save you from your condition. Your, your husband or your wife, your brother, your sister, your best friends, none of them can save you from your sinful condition. You can't save you from your sinful condition. Only Jesus Christ can save you from your sins. And we must believe that Jesus Christ is the only Son of God. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son. We must believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross. Uh, when, when God gave Jesus to us, he did not give Jesus to us merely for Jesus to be a good example. He did not give Jesus to us merely so that we could have a good teacher. He did not give Jesus to us just so Jesus could pat children on the head. He did not even give Jesus to us simply so he could utter prophetic words. No, when God gave Jesus to us, he gave Jesus to us for the express purpose of going to the cross. He gave Jesus to us knowing full well that we would accuse try and convict him of crimes he didn't commit, that we would mock him and ridicule him and spit on him and beat him, and that eventually we would murder him on a tree, on a hill that we set aside for the people that we hated the most. God gave Jesus to us that he might die on the cross, and we must believe that. If Jesus did not die on the cross, then we are still mired in our sins. 
If Jesus was not the perfect atonement for our sins, then we are still stuck in that Old Testament system where we have to continually bring the imperfect sacrifice to God to continually atone for our sins, make up for our sins, apologize for our sins, and yet never truly get there if Jesus didn't die on the cross. But if Jesus did die on the cross, and newsflash, Jesus did die on the cross, then our sins are forgiven. Our sins are placed on him. And we must believe that. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. We must believe that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. Now, I see that in that phrase at the end of the verse that says that we should not perish but have everlasting life. That, that word but is interesting. It works the same way in Greek grammar as it does in English grammar. It's called an adversative conjunction. It takes two ideas, two clauses of a sentence, two things, and it puts them together so that they might be compared. In some instances, the two things are similar with only slight variations. But in other instances, like our text here, the two things are, are diametric opposites of each other. You see, on the one side of the equation, we have this word perishing. Now, perishing is not really a word that we use a whole lot unless we're talking about, you know, our groceries and what is perishable and imperishable. But as Jesus is using the word here, he is using the same idea, the same uh, constellation of words as we talked about before with Paul in Romans about death, that we are, we are just grasped by our death, that we are perishing, that we are on the way to this spiritual death where we will forever be separated from God. This is where we are. That's the left side of the equation where we find ourselves. On the, on the right side of that equation is eternal life. Your uh, version might say everlasting life. Um, so that term eternal or everlasting, it obviously has a chronological meaning, meaning that it, it just goes on and on and on forever. But, but just saying that our life will be forever, while true, isn't good enough because the phrase here in the Greek actually implies not just an order of time, but a quality of life. You see, we tend to think that everlasting eternal life is just more of what we've got here just forever. But that's not the case at all. Eternal life is of a, an entirely different nature than this life. This life is but an echo of the life to come. Eternal life is eternal. Eternal life is everlasting. Eternal life is different because it is spent in the very presence of Jesus Christ. It is spent in the very presence of a holy God who prior to Jesus' death and resurrection was not attainable to us. It is the exact opposite of perishing. Perishing, eternally separated from God. Eternal life, eternally within the presence of God. These things are diametrically opposed. They are mutually exclusive. We find ourselves on the left-hand side perishing. How in the world do we get to the right-hand side where we have eternal life, everlasting life? We get there through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You see, 
if Jesus was not raised from the dead, then God does not have the ultimate power and authority. Death does. If Jesus was not raised from the dead, then death is the final say. Death is the arbiter. Death is the higher power above God, and God is subservient to death. Jesus would be subservient to death if Jesus was not raised from the dead. If Jesus was not raised from the dead, then death has you, and it won't ever let you go. But Jesus was raised from the dead. And on that third day, God looked death in the face and he said, you have no authority here. You have no say over my one and only son. And you have no say over my children. Death was put to death in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And because Jesus was raised from the dead, we have hope. We have hope that we too will be raised from the dead. We have hope that death is not the end, that death is not the conqueror, that Jesus is the victor, and we are victorious with him. We must believe that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. So there you have it. That's the gospel. That's what we must believe. For God so loved the world. God loves sinners, and we must believe it because that's what we are. He so loved the world that he gave his only son. We must believe that Jesus Christ is God and that he came to die for our sins on a cross. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. We must believe that Jesus was raised from the dead for us to have hope that we too will be raised from the dead. That is the gospel. The gospel is the most beautiful thing anyone could ever imagine. In a moment, um, I'm going to pray for us, and then John's going to come up and, and sing a closing, a closing song. And um, it's going to be your opportunity to respond to that gospel. You find yourself in one of two places this morning. Either you are a child of God, you have responded to the call of the Holy Spirit, you have accepted Jesus Christ in your heart. If that is you, then I pray that you will use these moments as we have just thought about the gospel, as John leads us in singing, I pray that you will use these moments to praise God for what he did. Maybe you're having a tough time of it. The gospel is your hope. The gospel is your encouragement that what you see around you, what is going on in this world is temporary. It is a blip on the radar of eternity. The gospel has delivered you into the very presence of Almighty God. Be encouraged by the gospel. Maybe, though, you're in the other camp. You have never given your life to Jesus. Maybe you've heard about him, but you never really took him seriously. But in these moments that we've been sharing together, you've been listening, and... You feel a tug at your heart. You feel a tug in your mind. That is the Holy Spirit calling you to faith in Jesus Christ. I'm going to be down right here. I want you to respond to the call of the Holy Spirit if you find yourself in that position. You come as you are called. Respond to the gospel. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we are amazed at the blessings that you give to us. Father, 
you did not even have to give us life. You did not have to create us in the first place, and yet you did that. And what a blessing our lives are. Father, you did not have to give us material blessings. You did not have to give us blessings of family, blessings of friendship, blessings of relationship. And yet, Father, you give to that, you give those to us in spades. But Father, what we are truly humbled and amazed by is the gift of your son. You did not have to save us. But you did. You did because you loved us. You did because you were gracious. You did because you were merciful. And Father, we are in awe and humbled by it. So we thank you, God, for Jesus Christ. We thank you for the Holy Spirit. If there is someone in this room today that has not responded to that call, Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit attends to that person's heart and mind, that you convince them of the truth of who Jesus was, the truth of what he did, the truth that you raised him from the dead, and the truth that salvation can be ours because we believe. You prod that person, Father. Send them forward. We love you. We praise you and we honor you. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the Holy Spirit. And we thank you that we can call you God. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. is calling Have you come to the end of yourself? Do you thirst for a drink from the well? Jesus is calling